Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's Election Day, finally, November 6, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes with Jonathan Vlast and Jim Swift of the Weekly Standard. Okay, gentlemen, Election Day. Is there anything worse than Election Day punditry? Just, I, I've spent the last two hours just listening, including to my... Oh, sorry, Charlie, we, we, we have some breaking news here. <laughs> Six hours until polls close. Get ready for that sound <laughs> all day, every day, and in your dreams. It, it is like the longest pregame show ever. You know, it, it's gotten to the point. And many years ago, I remember I, I spent a whole – it was Super Bowl Sunday, and I I got up early, and I started watching the pregame, and just uh, hours and hours and hours. And by the time the game started, I was so bored, I fell asleep. I think, I don't even think I watched the game. I won't, that won't happen tonight. You know, Charlie, so, this, is, this is Jonathan last year. I'm reporting uh, to you right now that Guam has just elected its first Democratic governor in many years. This could be a sign of a blue wave that is going to wash across America as the polls begin closing in. Jim Swift, how many hours? Six hours. Six hours from now. Back to you, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. I'm going to be <laughs> Isn't this, this, well, this, this is later. This is all of the next six hours, right? Polls don't actually close until no. six in Kentucky and then 7.30, I think, is the, the seven is the first wave of Georgia, Indiana, Kentucky, South Carolina, Virginia. Virginia. But, but after they all that, have these really cool graphics and these boards, these like the, oh, the, the world's screens. largest iPads, oh, which, are, amazing, which are really quite they? awesome to see up close. I will say the that. holograms, the hologram Senate, you know. Oh, oh yeah. That is awesome. It's, you know, Charlie, it's like uh, I'm, I'm a guy who likes sports. I'm more of a baseball guy than, than football. But it's like they saw the concept of college game day and say, why, why don't we do that for three days? <laughs> yeah, but it's been going on forever. Okay, Jim, just before you started, you uh, you did point out the significance of today, which is... Getting some uh, information here. This is CNN Breaking News. Today is the first day of the 2020 presidential campaign election. See, Jonathan, that's absolutely right. Anyone who thinks that this is over, first of all, I don't even know that by the end of the day we will actually know what the what the outcome is. I mean, there's a possibility that this could linger on, recounts, uh, runoff elections. Uh, California usually takes, what, a freaking month to count its votes? Yes. I'm sorry. I'm just, and then, of course, you know that as of tomorrow, we go back to, hey, remember that Mueller investigation? And, hey, Jeff Sessions has been is, – is out. So the, the, the news cycle – is not this is there's not going to be a okay well we did that let's take a deep breath and figure where we know it's boom you know that it's going to be exactly like that so in terms of hot takes uh, i was uh, listening to Corey lewandowski this morning already pre-spinning the uh, the loss of the house and uh that you know I, I think one of the safest predictions is no matter what happens it's not donald trump's fault and donald trump won right he's he's he, he is the winner and somebody else's fault and probably it's paul ryan probably paul ryan it's Almost probably, certainly probably. Paul Ryan's fault, possibly Scott Walker's fault as well, so long as he loses. Right? I mean, this is but, the way it's going to be. I will make one one prediction pretty confidently. Yeah. By Friday, by this Friday, it is going to feel as though the midterm elections were four weeks ago. That's, we you know, we that, really are going to be moving. This is just going to be another news event, the way everything is a news event for us. And I... The, the it will spur some other news events. We'll presumably get a clearing out of a bunch of administration jobs. I expect to see you know at least three, maybe five people leave over the course of the next four or five weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing will really change until the new Congress gets seated, right? And that I, and that I, is yeah. when Trump Trump can control. If if you believe that the Democrats are going to take the House as as I do, um, 
then nothing will change until then. But the problem is once the new Congress is seated in January, uh, Trump loses his ability to be able to control the news cycle at will because all of a sudden the Democrats become actors. You know, they, they are things that they can do affirmatively to make his life miserable. Yeah, something else for the cable television stations to run live. Uh, well, you, you know, there, there's, of course, always the possibility of a lame duck session, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Got to um, get that tax cut for the, the poorest 10%, you know, because Trump promised. <laughs> you know, I, I, <laughs> the wall, I, I, I the wall really want, will be in there. I, I really wanted to be contrarian. Uh, today. Oh, by the way, before I, I forget, the one of the most undercovered stories of, of today is Mitt Romney's going to the U.S. Senate. Mitt Romney, think how long Mitt Romney's <laughs> no. been trying to get to Washington, D.C. Mitt Romney will be in the United States, and, and it's like not even, hey, hello, remember, remember me? God <laughs> bless him. He finally I, did it. I, I, I want to be contrarian about, you know, saying things like, you know, everybody is, you know, is, what was that? Uh, you know, is, is obsessed with, with the wrong elections, including, including Florida. But the more I think about it, the more I think that the, what happens in Florida is going to have just tremendous long-term consequences. If Andrew Gillum wins in Florida, which does certainly seem to be possible, it's obviously a very big deal for Democrats to win in Florida. But I'm also pretty sure that Democrats will draw the wrong conclusions from that. That uh, the Democrats are just itching to come up with a reason to move as far and hard left as possible. And even though one of the reasons they're going to win control of the House of Representatives is they've recruited moderate Democrats in places like Pennsylvania to run for the House seats, you know that they're going to be pointing at Gillum's victory in Florida. See, I'm already getting ahead of myself yeah. here. Um, but I, I, I do think that this is one of those those moments where every party ought to be you know, a little bit careful about what they wish for. Sure, I agree, Charlie. And, you, and the possibility of a Gillum victory reminds me of a uh, election a number of years ago of a guy named Bob McDonnell in Virginia. You know, Virginia votes after the, the regular elections. And so I think Obama had just won. You know, Republicans uh, had lost Virginia and, you know, of course, for years and years after, you know, we, we, we keep losing. Uh, but, you know, that one time Bob McDonald won. So you got, you got to be careful because sometimes these things can be outliers. Um, you know, they, they, they don't always they don't often fundamentally change the uh, demographics and political voting habits of a state. You know, I will go back to what uh, Jonathan said before about how by Friday this is going to seem like old news. And, you know, that that's really that it think about how long ago the Kavanaugh hearings were. I mean, it, it, it that feels like it was a different political world. Think how long ago the pipe bomb story was. I mean, th and that 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 pace is is bizarre. So among the extraordinary things about this election and look, this is an extraordinary election in terms of just the, the voter turnout, the, the early voting, all of that, but also the cost of this election. You were talking about like three billion dollars in TV and radio getting close to a billion dollars of online ads. Um, it will be interesting when all of this settles, whether or not the money actually made a difference. Who actually knows? So g give me your hot takes on this. I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm pre-burned out. Knowing that, that we're going to be doing this now for the next, you know, 48 hours. It's like, it's, is, is there anything, is there anything that, that has not been said yet? about all of this i mean can we say yeah, this is going to be a referendum on donald trump which is yes we got that can we just have the numbers just play the game you know charlie the more i look at these races tonight the more i'm i'm truly convinced in my soul that it's all going to come down to turnout <laughs> and, <laughs> is, and you know the key it's will really going to be who gets the most yeah. votes it will be right in it, crucial it, it, waukesha who, who county 
Yeah. Who puts the points up on the board? By the way, I will be in Crucial Waukesha County. You mock. I will physically be in place? Crucial Waukesha I will. I will be there. Wow. Will you be having cheese curds? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's like a stereotype, but, but you know, cheese curds are great. Are you like into cheese curds? Have you ever I had love cheese curds. Curd? Oh, cheese curds are so good. The real ones okay, that good. squeak. All right. Oh, they're so great. No, I'm not making fun. Charlie, come on. No, 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 no. No, but I, I will be there. And, um, because everything happens in, in Waukesha County. And, um, as I was driving in, um, you know, I was listening to people saying, you know what, how big the turnout is in Waukesha County, but here's the problem. And this is the problem for Republicans is that the turnout is always big in Waukesha County. And essentially when you have an 89, 90% turnout all the time, you don't have a lot of room to grow. And so I was talking to some Republicans this morning, and they they actually do think that that Scott Walker can pull it out. We'll see. This will be dated really very quickly, you know. But there are not a lot of uh, you know undecided voters in Wisconsin. I don't think there are any undecided voters in in Wisconsin, and the voters here are very very battle tested. But they know that they're going to get the eighty nine ninety percent turnout in Waukesha County. What nobody knows is whether the, the you know these unicorns out there, young voters who actually vote. You know, will people in, you know, African-Americans, will they turn out for one of the most boring gubernatorial candidates in the country? Who knows? Um, But it is going to be interesting to see, because I do think that uh, Democrats are not going to take the Senate, but they're going to run the table in the Rust Belt in terms of the Senate. I mean, think about this. I you know, it's from Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. You want to throw in Minnesota, uh, even throwing in Indiana. I think the Democrats are going to run the table on all those Senate seats, possibly not in, in Indiana. But most of those races, I don't think are going to be even close. And those are the states that elected Donald Trump president. Yeah, so, I, you know. I, I think that's I think that's right. Um, it's it's a weird thing that's happening here. And part of it is there was, there was a great piece by Amy Walter. I mean, this is unlike most, nobody ever knows what's going to happen on an election day, but right. there is a great deal of uncertainty here, uh, just statistically. And Amy Walter of Cook Political Report wrote about this about three weeks ago. And what she looked at was simply nothing except for voter enthusiasm numbers. Mm-hmm. And the case she made was that this election is unlike any other midterm election we've ever had in that you have the enthusiasm levels of both parties through the roof. They would be high by presidential year standards. Uh, and the, and it, you know, so the, the Republican enthusiasm levels are higher than they have ever been for a midterm election. And not only are Democratic enthusiasm levels higher than they have ever been in a midterm, but they're like twice what the Republican, not twice, but uh, I think it's like a 17 point margin on top of the Republican level right now. Hmm. Uh, and so you have. Just as you know, I, I was kidding and making a, a joke about the turnout thing, but uh, as a sort of political science pointy headed matter, what this all about is modeling turnout. And when you when the pollsters and the people who study this for a living can't figure out how to model the turnout, right, that is right. when they become deeply uncertain. And, and, and there are and that, good reasons to believe that this is this, this has been yeah. an unmodelable election, uh, and that's and it does make you wonder where. Is this the new normal? And we've been trending this way since the two thousand, since after the two thousand election. This is, I think, I've said this to you before on on the show. Uh, I, I am convinced that the two thousand Gore versus Bush fight is underappreciated as a hinge point in American political history, and 
that everything changed following that. And that the, it is possible that the road we're on now actually all follows from Bush v. Gore, no matter what anybody wanted to do. And hmm. that we are going to tend more and more towards uh, high intensity, high voting participation rates, which I'm not convinced is healthy. I mean, this is if you look back at the, the preceding 20 years, there were a lot of political science types who would say, actually, you know, the truth is having a 50 to 54 percent voter turnout in America is a sign of health because the truth is politics isn't all that integral to our lives. Everything is pretty stable here. Everything's going okay. You don't need people don't feel as though it is vitally and crucial for them to step in and vote because their lives are actually going pretty well and they're reasonably confident in the direction of the country. Are are you saying this isn't the most important election of our lifetime? No, what what I'm saying is that I'm actually I'm made nervous when huge swaths of people feel as though it is vitally important for them to vote. That suggests to me that politics is occupying a place in their lives and their imaginations, yep. which is unhealthy. Uh, yeah. And and I'm not saying it's un- that they're unhealthy for perceiving it that way. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. But but if it's real, then that's unhealthy too, right? This is part of limited government conservatism: is that you believe that uh, the government should be actually less, you know, should touch your the touch points of government in your life should be as few as possible. And uh, anyway, I I do worry that all of this. I've I have never. <laughs> democracy is not all that great. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> and I have never thought that we, you know we should be striving for a hundred percent participation rate there. I mean, have you met people? There are a whole lot of people who should not vote. <laughs> Which when the New York Times did that thing like the week ago about the millennial oh, voters. Yeah. Oh, stamps. And I was like, boy, you know what? Let's have as few voters as possible. Let's try to winch this down to, I don't know, 40% participation rate. That sounds about right to me. I think, no, no, no. I don't want to me. I don't want to go beyond what I, what I know here. But remember when, when Frank Luntz had, I don't want to say nervous breakdown, but became so frustrated because he would have these focus groups and people made no sense whatsoever. And there was a time I think he took a, t- a break. You just do not want to listen to what people say about these things. It is it is genuinely frightening. Yeah, I, I you know, and I, 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 I my favorite example of this is I have a, a guy in my personal life who I'm friends with who's a small business owner whose business I, I frequent quite a lot. And I remember talking with him for the, the, the it was before the 2012 election. And uh, he's a very nice guy, very sharp. He runs a business successfully. That's hard, you know. Um, and he I, he asked me what I thought, and I sort of demurred and asked him what he thought. And he said, well, you know, I've, I've been a, a Republican my whole life, and uh, and I voted for Obama. Obama's the first Democrat uh, I've ever voted for for president. And, uh, and I, you know, he just turned me. And I so I sort of probed a little bit on that, and I said— that is very interesting because he's he's originally from Massachusetts, you know, he's Irish in background that sort of cuts against demographic type. I said, so so you were a you were a George W. Bush voter. He's like, no, no, I never voted for him. Okay. Said, so, so he wasn't. So really. you were. I said, so you must have come of age then during the Reagan years uh, and voted for Reagan. No, no, I never, never. And it turns out what he was telling me was that the first time he'd ever voted for president was for was for Obama. But he held this this image. This guy is 60 years old, but he held this huh. image of himself as being a lifelong Republican, despite the fact that he had never voted for a Republican who was running for president. And so huh. he saw himself as a and again, this isn't he's not stupid. This isn't a but this is a guy. Politics is not central to his life. And so his self image uh, of his political identity does not jibe at all with what people trying to measure what people what voters think uh, would would convey from the objective facts about his behavior. Like Kentucky Democrats. 
Yeah. 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 Whoever, or, yeah, or West Virginia exactly. Democrats who just strangely always vote. Rep- I mean, yeah. 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 Those, those guys. I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking, Jonathan, about your point about uh, Bush v. Gore and what a turning point it is. And, uh, it, it, you know, because there's no question about it. You have to ask, how did you get from there to here? And, you know, just go back, though, a couple of years before that. Remember, we just came out of the Clinton impeachment. Now, the Clinton impeachment was was really one of those moments where I do think we kind of lit the fire. And then, of course, you go into Bush v. Gore, which is then followed the next year by 9-11. And we have a war. And then, of course, we have a recession. And we have all of those things. It has been building for for, you know, so long. But the level of intensity that we have now is really extraordinary. And I'm thinking back to 2010 and 2014, and there was no question about it that the Republicans were, you know, were on fire and crawl through, you know, fire and, you know, broken glass and all those other cliches. You know, the big difference now is that it looks like the Democrats are at least matching that kind of enthusiasm. And so that's, again, the, the, the unknown unknown. But, but you're right. It is this, this consuming thing where people are not just interested in politics, but they're, they're depressed about it. It affects their eating. It affects their sex life. It affects, you know, with how they exercise. Their marriage. And I don't remember any other time when it was, you know, I mean, it used to be the politics was something that guys like us would, would talk about, okay? And then we would go on to our real lives. Now it just seems to permeate everything. And the emotional reactions, I, I think I tweeted out yesterday morning that a lot of pundits we're still suffering from PTSD because of uh, 2016. And I got this, you know, overwhelming reaction from people saying, it's not just pundits. I'm still suffering. I'm a nervous wreck. I can't do this, you know. And, uh, and it's like, you're right, Jonathan. When did politics become this important in people's lives? Yeah, and I, I think the sequence of events you describe is exactly right. It is. I mean, if, if you think Jim joked about, you know, this is the most important election of our life, which is something people always talk themselves into, except at 2000. I remember the 2000 election and being vaguely surprised during it that most people seem to think it actually wasn't all that important. That it was this was a fat times election between two guys who were basically the same-ish. Uh, you know, we were returning to normalcy either way. And it was only the post-election fight about about the result in Florida that hardened and turned it into this real flashpoint for everything. And yeah. maybe things could have gotten better had Bush governed in a more majoritarian sort of way, but then his hand was forced by 9-11, right? I mean, he, hmm. he did not have the opportunity to be a Clinton-esque type uh, president because he became a wartime president, uh, and then he mismanaged the war, and all, you know— a whole bunch of things follow from that, uh, but you've. I I sort of started a piece on this a couple of years ago and did a bunch of interviews with uh, political professionals, people who do campaigns for a living on both sides. And what I found interesting was that uh, the conservative and Republican guys I talked to seemed to agree with me. They thought that. Uh, Yes, Bush v. Gore is this moment that shifts everything and is a a real two paths diverging in a wood moment for American Hmm. politics. And the Democrats didn't. Uh, The Democrats, to a man that I spoke with, all said that, no, there are just bigger demographic and economic forces at play here. And the country was always going to fracture along these lines. And then once it began fracturing along these lines, it was always going to wind up elevating a guy like Donald Trump. There was going to be some populist moment, and the populist candidate is always a bad guy. 
you know, there's no the the, the populist candidate is never uh, you know Rihan Salam Ross Douthat. You know, like they, you know, those guys have reformed populism, but they're not the ones though. who. I mean, you could you could talk about running. these these underlying changes, but then what are the flashpoints that make the difference? You know, yeah. So the, yeah, the, so, so I'm not rendering a verdict on this either way. I'm just sort of presenting the, okay. the two I, views. Okay, I, I, I got one for you guys. So since we we all agree that this is not the most important election in our lifetime, even though every election we say that. So what was the most important election in our lifetime? Now, let me just – I'm going to talk out loud. I'm going to think out loud here because I think about the elections that, that, that really nobody thought that about. I mean 1996, Bob Dole versus Bill Clinton. You know, 1988, I remember not being terribly engaged. I mean that was you know Michael Dukakis versus George uh, – you know, H.W. Bush. Nobody thought that the fate of the world rested on 1988, you know, 1992. Um, so what – you know, we, we, we always say this to ourselves but – was there any election we go, okay, that was the that was the most important election in our lives? I think you can make a – I mean I, the, the two that jump out at me are 1980. I was, was going to go right. with that. 1980 is an awfully important mm-hmm. election mm-hmm. because do you, do you accept the Carter view that that is the new normal for America or do you reject it? Yeah, does America embrace decline? Yeah. Uh, 2000 is – it turns out retrospectively because of 9-11 becomes a very important election but there's no way to know it at the time. Uh, if I mean think – just sort of game this out. If Al Gore winds up as president in 2000, he's in the White House. Uh, he is naturally a semi-hawkish guy to begin with because he had not become crazy lefty planet Captain Planet Al Gore. Uh, for all we know, the Democrats become the sort of hawkish internationalist party and the Republican Party fractures with guys like Lindsey Graham and John McCain. Uh, on matters of principle, joining the democratic idea about having to at least do Afghanistan right. and maybe Iraq for all we know, uh, while the more isolationist and politically opportunistic parts of the Republican Party uh, begin heading in the direction they're in now. The Ron then, Paul types. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and actually 2004 becomes an interesting election, too, because the question had John Kerry won in 2004 campaigning as a vaguely pro-war Democrat. He did not. He was the guy who rejected the Howard Dean message, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the last moment before the Democrats become wholly anti-war. Yeah. Uh, and if he wins that, then that changes the trajectory of the Democratic Party and changes at least the way we look at foreign affairs uh, globally. Hmm. Okay, Jim. Most. Well, yeah, you know, you guys are talking about like 1980, and I'm thinking, oh, it's negative three. Yeah. It was great. Um, <laughs> at 2004, um, I, I took a semester off of school, and I worked for President Bush's campaign. And I knew very little about politics other than that I liked politics and later found out when I came to Washington and worked in the official offices and, you know, actually learned what gov- governing was about, that, you know, politics and county campaign trail and governing very much different. But looking back on that 2004 election, I would argue that it is one of the more important elections because parties would start doing anything to win to hold on to the White House for two consecutive terms. Hmm, and really? Carl Rove, what was it like nine, ten states had ballot initiatives on gay marriage. You know, that was a huge get out the vote driver on ballot access. And then, of course, you know, years later, all those votes are rendered meaningless by the courts. And, you know, that, that of course, disillusions people, too, that, you know, I, I thought I voted to put this in the Constitution and then – Years later, no, sorry, doesn't matter. People attacked it as a cynical ploy then, 
and I didn't agree with them. And now in retrospect, I think built in a sort of cynicism politically for each party that once you control the White House for the first four years, you literally will try and do anything uh, or attempt anything to to keep it going. And that just sort of makes the pendulum swing a little bit further every time. And then, you know, we, we just kind of have these longer periods in which you're in, or pa- in, in power or out of power. So, yeah, then, you know, and, you know, even though I, I asked you about the most consequential election, I keep coming back to the the Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision that fundamentally changed, leaving aside the impact on, on unborn children, but, you know, fundamentally changed our judicial politics and in, in terms of just driving this wedge, this irresolvable wedge, you know, a lot of other Western countries have figured out a way to compromise on this or at least not make this such a central issue. And you think about the consequences of Roe versus Wade and how it has changed this tribalism of presidential politics where the Supreme Court has become, you know, you mentioned, Jonathan, that politics should not be as important in our lives as it is. And definitely the Supreme Court should not be as important in our political life as it is right now. And you can really trace a lot of that back to that particular decision. I, mean, I, I suppose judicial historians would also say, look, you know, you need to go back into the Warren Court, uh, the uh, you know Earl Warren Court. You need to go back into the whole you know activist judiciary of the 1960s. But that really strikes me as something that it, it's not the presidential election, but it changed the way we react to presidential elections. I think that's right. And the the question is, is there any going back? And I don't. Uh... I, don't, I just don't. I don't know. What do you? Th- I. I don't. I mean, on the one hand, I say no. It's hard to go back. Uh, maybe it's impossible to go back. But on the other hand, you look at the way. I mean, you know, you used to have senators beating each other on the floor of the Senate with canes, right? I mean, it. Well, we, we did have a civil and, war in this country. We did, well, shoot, we did shoot each other. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. In, in great numbers. With, with industrial efficiency. Yeah. You're not you're not Kurt Schlichtering me, are you? You know, you're not calling for a new new civil war here. Because some people no. are doing that. And I think, you know, of course, it's deeply irresponsible. But that's that's what a lot of people seem to think is inevitable and is the solution. Um, I don't think that it is. But I also do not think that um, you know, I read this great New York Times piece about how there's this Democratic dark money group. And you think Democrats, dark money. And one of the guys behind the group said, yeah, we're not going to unilaterally disarm just because we don't like the way things are. Unfortunately, you know, I I don't think that uh, either political side is. I mean, you can't. You, it, once we've built up to this fever pitch and the point where we are now in, as a society, it, people either tune out and become disaffected and, you know, everyone's jaded and cynical like many of us uh, or, uh, I mean, but they're not going to just stop caring. You know, the people who care about abortion are not going to stop caring about abortion tomorrow. They're not going to stop caring about it in 2020. They're always going to care about it. So I don't know what, what has to give, you know, to do yeah, it. But. I, I, don't, I don't know what has to give either, but uh, nothing will be solved by what happens today. No. There's no there's no scenario that I can think of where uh, the partisan wars do anything but intensify as of the close of polls today. Anybody disagree with me on that? No, I, I don't. And I don't think there's any way to have even a clean victory for one side or the other today. Nah. It will no. Both sides will come out of this claiming some sort of victory. Maybe that will be a reasonable claim. It probably won't be, but... Uh, oh, nothing's Fox ever News, settled. Fox News will be touting the victories in the Senate. Yeah, you know MSNBC and CNN will be touting the victories in the House, and it will be you know our, our alternative realities. 
And by the way, I mean, I, I've written a whole book about this, you know, the right losing its mind. But you really had it on display, though, when watching Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh on stage with with Donald Trump and uh, just pushing some of the strangest conspiracy theories. This, this is the other thing is the sort of the derangement of our political dialogue. You know, you look back somewhat nostalgically on some of the debates that we used to have that we used to think were very, very contentious. But the way that the fever swamps have overflowed and some of the things that are now have been injected into the political mainstream and bloodstream, that's also going to be very, very hard to go back. I mean, the window of acceptable discourse has moved and is moving so rapidly and so poisonously that I, uh, again, I, I, I don't I don't see it unless there is this moment where America says, you know, let's make America decent again. But I that's. I think I'd have to be pretty naive to think that that's going to be happening in the next couple of years. Okay, anybody want to make a big prediction? No, to make, make a prediction that will surprise me. I go, wow, I didn't see that coming. Jim, wow, you're the only person who's predicted blank. Sit in the bar, high. Jim, do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, no, I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't. Like you said earlier, is there anything on this podcast that we can really say that really hasn't been said? No, I mean, I, I, I can't I cannot come up with a prediction um, that I don't think uh, has any chance of coming true uh, that I would want or uh, that hasn't already been predicted. I, I would say this. This isn't a prediction so much as a, a guess. Um, if if we are sitting down at the roulette table and we're just going to put a fiver out on some number out there, uh, the number I would say is I would say greater than 240 in the house uh my Ooh, wow. my guess would be that one of the consistent things we've seen over the last 12 years because we've now had like four wave three or four wave elections in a row uh, and that the the preliminary polling always understates the wave and the, the wave is never overstated it it is never more you can only see the wave in hindsight you can't see it in foresight uh which would lead me to suggest that there's a greater chance of there being a wave than we might currently appreciate right now because there has been over the last three elections that were waves that same same sense you, you, of you know I, you you may, you're not really going that far out on a limb because these the last minute polls from you know the New York Times that they have been doing you know showing that three point shift and it doesn't take much more than you know two or three points to yeah. to go from you know 20 seats to you know you know 45 seats that's that sort of thing and we may actually be seeing that happening here in fact i was talking to steve kornacki yesterday and he's a believer that uh, that the the democrats have closed uh, hard here um i'm going to go out on a limb and this is like wishful thinking um people are going to be surprised that uh, that despite the full-throated endorsement of chuck grassley that steve king is finally going to go down no matter Again, what else it was, happens, it was surprising. And if I said, that happens, then America will have won. Yes. I, I agree. And, and, you know, let's end on that, that rare positive note. Thank you, gentlemen. And the Daily Standard Podcast is brought to you today by Quip. Look, one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth, and yet most of us do a lousy job at it. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers, and it was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. Quip features sensitive sonic vibrations that are gentle on your sensitive gums. Why? Well, because most people brush too hard, and some electric toothbrushes are just too abrasive. 
Quip has a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean. Now, up to 90% of us do not brush for a full two minutes or do not clean evenly. Um, the Quip uh, toothbrushes also come with a multi-use cover, which I find really handy. I have these. I use them. I travel with them. And basically, this multi-use cover mounts to your mirror and unmounts to slide over your bristles for on-the-go brushing. And it obviously declutters your sink or cabinet, which I could really use. The brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. Three out of four of us use bristles that are old, worn, and ineffective. I'm guilty of that, or was. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified five-star reviews, which is why I love Quip. I use it on a regular basis, why I would not leave the house without it when I'm traveling, and it's why they are backed by more than 20,000 dental professionals. So Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash standard right now, because you're listening to this podcast, getquip.com slash standard, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash standard. And we'll be so much smarter. Well, not that much smarter tomorrow. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back here tomorrow to break this all down.